You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2009, Volume 47, Issue 12. My name's Ike Hianatra, and I'm an editor of DTB, and I'm joined by David Fazakli, DTB's deputy editor. Hello. This month's issue begins with an editorial entitled C. difficile outside hospital. Why is this of any interest, David? Well, Clostridium difficile infections has been identified as a key area for the NHS to to tackle. Data that's been recorded uh, shows that the number of cases has been increasing, uh, peaking in about 2007. And along with some uh, well-publicised hospital outbreaks, uh, this has become a a national target for the NHS to tackle. It was increasing up to 2007, but it's now decreasing. It's now on the way down. Uh, There's been lots of changes taking place. A lot of the activity taking place in hospitals uh, to have an impact on the the number of cases, and this has seen a a decline since 2007. And the point of the editorial is to to really question what's happening outside hospital, how are primary and community care services tackling uh, C. difficile infections, and to look at whether some of the issues that, that hospitals have, have managed to tackle quite successfully uh, can translate across in, into the community and primary primary care. But why, why should this be an, an issue outside hospital? Because I suppose lots of people think, well, it's a, it's a hospital-acquired infection, isn't it? It, it is both. Uh, the, the data that's been recorded shows that, that some 40 to 50% of cases actually do occur outside hospital. Uh, and so it's as much an issue for, for primary care as it is for secondary care. OK. The first main article in, in this issue covers the, the topic of managing gastroesophageal reflux in infants. David, managing esophageal reflux is a, is a very common problem in primary care. What, what do you think this article might add? As you say, it's, this is a, a common condition uh, in infants, uh, and often it doesn't need any treatment. It's mild, it's clearly irritating for the patient and for the parents, but largely is manageable with just advice and reassurance. But sometimes uh, it's more severe and causes problems that need to be addressed. And the point of the article is to look at some of the treatments that might be used uh, and the evidence behind them. I mean, one of the issues in this area, which DTB's tackled before, is the, the lack of licensed products uh, for treating children with this condition. Is that still a problem? It is, and we do explore this, uh, looking at both what the evidence says, but also what, how many of these treatments are licensed. And much as before, come to some conclusions that there is real a, a limitation in the, in the number of treatments that are actually licensed for this, this age group. The, the second main article in this issue covers another very common problem, which is osteoarthritis, but, but a very specific uh, area, and that is use of strong opioids as a possible treatment. David, why, why is this an issue? Well, as you say, we know that this is a common condition and causes significant problems for patients. Managing the pain associated with this is one of the elements of, of treatment, and there's a range of options available to clinicians, uh, both drugs and other interventions. But for some groups of patients, this won't be enough uh, and the pain remains a significant problem. So what we try to address here is whether the use of strong opiates may play a role uh, in the management of of pain associated with osteoarthritis and try and explore some of the issues that this might raise in terms of 
um, using them outside the, the more recognised conditions uh, of, of pain associated with cancer. So just to be clear, we're talking about drugs like morphine, oxycodone, things that I suppose traditionally wouldn't be considered as as frontline agents for treating something like osteoarthritis. Yes, we make the distinction between some of the weaker opioids, codeines and dihydrocodines, but specifically look at, at the morphines and the, what we traditionally call the, the full-strength opioids and explore whether they have a role to play. Okay, thank you. And then finally in this issue, we, we turn to the issue of generic prescribing in epilepsy. Now, DTB is a very strong supporter of the idea of generic prescribing in general, um, but in epilepsy, there are particular issues, David. Yes, generic prescribing is almost reflex now in, in the NHS. But with epilepsy, it's always been a concern that if you swap patients between different manufacturers of the same drug, will it have an effect on the control of the condition? And what, again, the article tries to look at is whether there is any real evidence behind this to suggest whether there are problems or not and to suggest some practical recommendations of how to manage patients. What we find uh, is that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of patients experiencing problems, but there is a lack of hard information about how this should be dealt with. Thank you very much, David. To read these or other DTB articles, please go to our website, dtb.bmj.com. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.